What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk again to Yahya Bird. You're most welcome, sir. Oh, uh... Good afternoon, I guess, um, Good, yeah. as where we are anyway. And yeah. uh, uh, thank you, Paul, for having me back on. Uh, um, uh, salams to all of your viewers, and I'm um, happy to be back on Blogging Theology. Oh, salam to you. And uh, for those who don't know, I'll just uh, give a very brief summary of Yaha's uh, biography. He's a, a community historian uh, who has taught at the University of Leeds. Uh, he has an MPhil in Social and Cultural Anthropology from the University of Oxford, and he has published over a dozen peer-reviewed articles on Islam in Britain and co-edited uh, a title, British Secularism and Religion, Islam, Society and the State, published in 2016. Also, uh, a, a, a paper, Islam in Victorian Liverpool, an Ottoman account of Britain's first mosque community. Uh, it's actually a book published in 2021. And also, he's published a collection of poems by Abdullah uh, Quilliam, the famous um, Victorian Muslim, with uh, Ron Gibbs, which is uh, highly recommended. Also, he lives in uh, West Yorkshire uh, with his family and two cats. Um, he likes walking, he tells me, and being grumpy about the state of the world, which I imagine is pretty much a full-time occupation these days. And uh, he can be reached on Twitter at YBert, and I'll link to that in the description below. Uh, today, Yahya has kindly agreed to do a presentation on his latest and very significant paper entitled Umar at the Margins, the Past, Present and Future of Muslim Minorities. It's a very significant uh, contribution to our discussion. So would you like to introduce us to this subject? Uh, thank you, Paul. Um, so I've got a I've got a, a PowerPoint presentation that I'm going to talk to, talk through. Yeah, I just put it up uh, on the screen, and I hope your viewers can see it. Yep, I've just put it up so we can see the uh, the first slide there. Okay, so so this is um, let me start off by saying that um, uh, this is this is meant to be a conversation starter mm. uh, rather than making any kind of spurious claim to be uh, definitive. Um, so, uh, the, you know, it's part of, it's a scoping report, it's conceptual, and it lays out some strategic recommendations. Mm. Um, it draws on the concrete experiences of British Muslims and Muslims in the West more generally. Um, so if we're talking about Muslim minorities everywhere, um, we can't pretend that we're talking from nowhere obviously all of we're all coming from somewhere i think the, the main question is and we have this attempt to have these kind of broad discussions sort of global discussions amongst muslims that when we have very very variable geometries uh, that we kind of end up do we try to end up sharing the same um set of challenges together and thinking them through you could call it like a problem the problem space of the ummah and reviving it and so on so what does the Ummah, reviving the Ummah look like for minorities if we set that up as a discussion? Obviously, we're going to be coming from different minorities and from different places, um, but it, it's it's recognising that it, it's fruitful 
to think hard about these things and to get beyond reacting and, and start, um, you know, building uh, really and, and acting in a sober way um, to assess our strengths and weaknesses and step forward from, from where we are. Mm. So that's a kind of a, the rationale behind writing this uh, in the first place. So, you know, I, I'm not, I, it's not some kind of manifesto at all, but, but it is trying to, you know, answer some big questions. Mm. Um, I should say a little bit about the Eon Institute where, yeah. where I work. So it's, it's a startup, it's new. Um, it is, has a vision. The vision is to see uh, a Muslim world that is united, independent, strong, prosperous, free of war and conflict and capable of resolving its own issues. Uh, and to that end, um, we, we published a paper written by a, a colleague of mine, Jahangir Muhammad, uh, called Creating a Civilization of Islam. And that, that, that sets out 12 broad strategies to, to, to revive that civilization. Mm. Um, and the key kind of concepts that it leans on are, is being homocentric, uh, of how do we achieve unification and unity, and how do you revive the civilization of Islam? Mm. Okay, so okay, to think, okay, sorry, to clarify a term, homocentric. What, so what does that mean in later, in just on everyday terms? So Umar is what the... the, the, the so Umar, I, I think, well, can, can we come back? Can we come back to that? Because I'll unpack yep. that as we go along. Is that, okay. is that okay in the of course, interest of absolutely. time? Of um, so, so this is a think tank and it's not an academic institute. So, you know, rather than having conclusions, we tend to have recommendations. I think that's the easiest way to look mm. at it, you know, is, is that we try to think of ways of acting in the world rather than, you know, coming to a kind of conceptual clarity or something like that, you know what I mean, or proving our argument. So obviously, you know, we tend to move to recommendations rather than conclusions. I think that's the easiest way to think about these sorts of intervention. Um, and so in, in this paper, um, the margins, which, which came out in October, uh, we are looking at um, Muslim minorities in particular, what role can Muslim minorities play in reviving Islamic civilization? Um, and there's sort of three key concepts here. One is Muslim minority. Two is politics of Ummah, which again, Paul, sorry for your listeners we'll, we'll, and viewers, we'll come back to Ummah shortly. Mm. And then looking at varieties of power, hard and soft Islamic power. And so I will explain and talk about all of these three key concepts mm. at, in, um, in the forthcoming presentation. Okay. So um, I, we can't deal with all these papers today in this presentation, but all these sort of big questions, key questions, uh, do get tackled in the report. Um, but I'm not going to deal with all of them today. Uh, but let me go through them. To, this is to give uh, your listeners and viewers an idea of the scope of the report and the kind of ground that it covers. So when it asks a very fundamental question, why does Muslim solidarity matter today? And why do Muslim, and within that, why do Muslim minorities matter? Um, the second thing is what overall condition, uh, conclusions can we draw about the state or condition of Muslim minorities today? Thirdly, what is distinct about politics of Ummah for Muslim minorities as opposed to other kinds of politics in the world, like nationalist politics? Mm. Uh, fourthly, you know, what are the goals of the politics of Ummah for Muslim minorities? What goals might we set ourselves? And, and finally, and fifthly, you know, how do Muslim minorities empower themselves? What does empowerment look like? 
what is Islamic hard and soft power? You need to think about that when you're thinking about empowerment. Mm. And what obstacles impede the politics of Ummah for Muslim minorities? Obviously, we do not operate in an obstacle-free zone. Mm. Um, so that also needs to be considered. So as you can see, you know, these are big, broad and, and wide questions. Yes. Um, so the sort of fundamental uh, uh, the fundamental proposition of this report is uh, is the following. Um, solidarity for our ummah thrives when we connect and empower the minority and majority Muslim worlds together. Mm. Um, and and the, the, the report sets out to kind of not only, not only defend, but to um, propose and articulate this, um, this, this proposition. So, you know, one in five, between one in four and one in five Muslims li lives in a minority context. And over half of those are in India, in one country, in India, over 200 million. It's statistic, isn't it? Because in India, we think well, now it's presenting itself much more as a Hindu power, but you're saying over half of the minority Ummah actually lives in India. It's extraordinary. That's right. And, and actually, that's also not just a demographic fact. It's a, it's a fact of great geopolitical importance, mm. Uh, mm. which the report dwells on. I think it matters tremendously that if India is pre-genocidal, Mm. Um, as many observers now think, um, uh, scholars of, of genocide now think, um, it, it, it matters tremendously how that minority is treated. I, I don't, um, I don't on this now, so I don't want to take up your time, but you just use this phrase, phrase pre-genocidal, which is extraordinarily alarming and significant uh, uh, because you're talking about the, the killing of masses of people. So I just wanted just to highlight that and move on because you, uh, but this is an extraordinary statement to make. Well, you know, it's I'm I'm far. I'm not the first person to make it. It's it's been it's it, there are scholars of genocide, and a number of them have said that, including the 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 site Genocide Watch, uh, including you know, say that India is showing all the signs of of pre pre genocide pre genocidal um, uh, uh, indicators like pogroms, uh, with the connivance or support active support of the police. Um, uh, uh, forcible removals, destruction of um, businesses, homes, and places of worship, um, intense and persistent demonization across politics, the media, um, um, you know, uh, intense discrimination in law, uh, in business, and in life, in, in public institutions in general. So there are a number of, of indicators that are extremely worrying. And um, there have been moments of, of ethnic cleansing in India with its huge population, uh, such as Gujarat in 2002, when uh, you know, 2,000 Muslims were killed um, uh, with, 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 with the connivance of the authorities, most likely. Um, so, so there have been warning signs before, but since the BJP came to power in 2014, this has only been intensifying. Um, mm -hmm. So... Anyway, our report um, uh, doesn't just deal with India. It, we, we try to provide a sort of big picture overview of 31 Muslim minorities around the world, each of which has a population of over a million. Um, so the, the smallest would be South Africa. Its population is about a million, going all the way up to India with over 200 million. Um, so here we go, just to kind of give everyone a kind of overview. So, 
So, so the populations in green, the territories in green are the Muslim majority countries. Um, as you see, there's a sort of equatorial belt, I suppose, from Indonesia to Morocco. Um, and then the, 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 the territories or countries in, in orange um, are, are where Muslim these 31 Muslim minorities reside with populations of over a million. Um, and then the light green are, are any other countries with Muslim minorities under a million. But, but we don't deal with them directly in the report because the populations would be too small, if you see what I mean, in some cases. Um, so we focus on these larger minorities. So breaking those 31 minorities down, uh, what was quite extraordinary that when we when we looked, did a big data analysis, we found um, sort of three groups, um, in analytically speaking, three three groups of minorities. Um, the first are the key three. Um, this is India, China, and Russia. All three are superpowers, uh, economically, militarily. Uh, all three uh, have historic. Muslim minorities of longevity, of great connection to, and the development of Islamicate civilization as a whole. Um, and all three have troubled relations with the minorities um, uh, to, to varying degrees, including, you know, the question of survival, I suppose. Um, and so, um, and what marks out these key three states is that um, uh, they present a real challenge for Muslims around the world to support them because of the complexity of geopolitics. Mm. Uh, and there will be many, many competing interests at play with their own agendas um, uh, above and beyond the kind of what you could call a kind of virtuous Muslim solidarity, politics of virtuous Muslim solidarity, where you're trying to help them not just to survive, but in the long run to thrive, right? Uh, to yeah. do more than just survive. But, but you know, it, 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 this is very difficult terrain uh, to, to, to navigate for various reasons, because there's a lot of conflicting interests at play. It's not a straight issue to deal constructively and proactively into some of into these situations if you if one wanted to offer support so that that's one that's key that's the key three the, the other is and the report sort of deals with them uh, has sections on on each um the, the next group is the africa 14 so you've got mm. 14 sub-saharan african states um uh with populations of over a million um, some very significant, like Ethiopia, is 36 million. Um, and um, uh, what's remarkable is that they all, all of these 14 societies have very high levels of religious freedom. Mm. Uh, and I think that's significant because if we think about, for instance, the Gambia, which is also in West Africa, but it's almost some majority society, it took Myanmar to the, to the International Criminal Court uh, to have the ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya Muslims uh, classified as a genocide uh, wow. in international law in 2019. So that's sort of emblematic of, of the way in which we could view these, these free societies, uh, religiously free societies to support the religious freedoms of, of others, um, mm -hmm. uh, other Muslim minorities and even religious freedoms of Muslim majority societies. Um, but of course, they they range from middle income incomes, uh, middle income countries like South Africa 
to some of the poorest uh, societies in the world, uh, like Mozambique, for instance. Uh, and then we have the final group, which is the Af which is the which is the Western Nine. Yeah. Um, these are all relatively new minorities. Um, they all sort of really emerge fully in the 20th century. Uh, the exception is Bosnia, where Islam emerges in the 16th century. Um, but they all um, have, comparatively speaking, relatively high incomes and, and relatively high levels of freedom. And so although they only number 30 million in total, these these nine nine minorities only number 30 million, nonetheless, they, they, they um, have a chance to punch above their weight when it comes to um, making contribution and, and helping others. I just say so. I may say I spoke to um, Dr. Abdullah Swedi uh, a few days ago. He teaches at the University of Medina. He's a Swedish uh, revert to Islam um, about Islam in Sweden, and I um, I thought there's a quite surprisingly high number of Muslims now in Sweden. There's thirty percent of Muslim, sorry, thirty percent of youth in Sweden are Muslim. Thirty percent. I think it's actually over a million people in Sweden are now Muslim overall, actually. So that might. Um... Yeah, I mean, look, we, we use one big data set from dating from 2020. Uh, right. It may be that some have crept over the million mark, and you know, I, but but I, I don't think that it would invalidate the analysis if right. we added Sweden in into. Yeah. Uh, but I'd be happy if there's another member of the Western Club. <laughs> I think there is. Yeah. I, I did um, a video. It's going to be uploading uh, soon. But he does talk about this, the stats, and I was surprised how high they were for Sweden demographics. Yeah, yeah. There's been quite a lot of change in Sweden recently. So yeah, of course. But um, you know, it doesn't invalidate the overall analysis. I don't think. So um, and then you know, talking about statistics. Um, so, so this is where you know what's kind of remarkable was that we we kind of did a measurement uh, uh, measuring you know individual wealth based on parity purchasing power, which you know allows for you know you know the ability of the local currency to buy a basket of everyday goods, and obviously you know it's so the cost of living is factored in. It's not a straight currency conversion if you into U.S. dollars or whatever. So, so but by that purchase, it's a little bit more fair, um, you know, on on, on the sort of uh, y-axis and the x-axis. Um, you have the um, you have state discrimination against minorities, and so what's really fascinating here is not only do you have a kind of geographical concurrence between the three sets of minorities that I talked about earlier, but you see, you know, the Africa fourteen being high in freedom, lower lower in wealth versus the Western nine high in freedom high in wealth and then you see the big three at the top you know um and, and relatively low low levels of religious freedom um here uh, it's a correlation chart between human freedoms in general um and um state discrimination against religious minorities in these 30 30 31 countries uh and this merely all this merely tells you something that's a bit counterintuitive which is that when we look at these 30 country, 30 minorities, the evidence shows that the more that more freedom overall in a society, whether that's civil, um, economic, or political freedoms, doesn't mean that the religious freedoms of minorities will be will necessarily be protected mm. or high. So yeah. we have to fight for them where they are actually individually threatened. So that's quite a big take home because yeah. the big data is showing that the assumption that if you raise all freedoms in a society you would automatically raise religious freedoms of minorities 
is not necessarily the case. And yeah. I think, you know, we could go into lots of reasons in each country, you know, political factors, cultural factors, whatever, why that might be the case. But we're merely saying here the big data is showing that statistically there's no there's no correlation between the two. So I think that that's an important insight, which we probably need to go away and work on a bit more uh, and to understand in individual cases why that is the case. Yeah. Um, uh, and again, that could be another whole discussion, I think, on, on its own. Yeah. Um, so so, so we, we do some conceptual work in the report. Um, I, I, I kind of want to argue that Ummah, uh, Ummah meaning here, in its simplest, um, simplest um, sort of form, um, is a Quranic concept, um, and the, the, so the Muhammadan Ummah is an ethical concept. It's about those who believe in God, who enjoy good and forbid wrong, and uphold justice. You know, or even-handed or moderate. Um, so it's 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 an ethical concept, and it's not about it's not a it's not tied to a territory. The idea of Ummah. It's not tied to a territory, um, and so. But but what what one of the things I do besides sort of going through the fundamentals of it being a normative concept um, for Muslims, I also want to argue that it's actually an analytical concept. What do I mean by that? So, in other words, if um, let's say you want to ask the question, if Muslims mobilize. Um, as an ummah across ethnic and national lines mobilized for a cause, mm. let's say, uh, let's say the Bosnian war in support of the Bosnians in the 1990s, mm. which was a, you know, a very wide mobilization of the ummah in support in many ways, uh, you know, probably chiefly political lobbying and, and charity. Um, uh, but, but there were others, other ways that they helped. Um, you know, you would, you would say, well, how did that mobilization work? You know, what obstacles did it overcome? How were people mobilized? Um, and, and and what does a successful mobilization look like? You're not there applying a normative concept, you're applying an analytical one because you're trying to understand how it works in the world. And the reason why I argue that's important is that we need to look at when Ummah mobilization is weak and we conversely and understand why that is. And conversely, we have to understand when it works in order to kind of see how normative values actually work in the world. I think it's incredibly important to play off our normative concept of Ummah with actually how it's working or not working in the world, because otherwise we don't know how to make our norms um, or actuate them in the world, if I can put it that way. So, and I also then go on to suggest that we need a kind of, this is a quite contentious point, I think, but we need something like double political theology because um, most, uh, mm. most, most Islamic political theology assumes Muslims are in power. Yeah. The four out of five Muslims who live in a majority Muslim societies who could assume that, that Islam would be the religion of the state and so on and so forth, right? That it would, there could be some application of Sharia in today's world, yeah. um, at least in some parts of, of life. Um, and, but, but we don't think about what does what what is a desirable um, political theology for the one in five Muslims who live as minorities. Mm. So this is the thing, you know, what do, do we think through their political theology or not? Or is it just going to be thought about in terms of exceptions? Mm. So, you know, fiqh al or whatever, you know, you want to talk about. 
Uh, you know, do we think through that one in five, what Islamic political theology looks like for them? No, I'm putting that as a provocation because I mm. don't see that. I don't see that. That think I always think that we have to stand and and mm. in the minority context, the 400 million plus Muslims who are in the minority, and think about what majority Muslim rule looks like. That's what we're going to dialogue and discuss. Mm. And is it not? You know, what what is the normative sort of um, role of a caliphate, for instance, um, for yeah. this, this you know, 1.5 billion. But meanwhile, the 400 million plus who live in the minority situation uh, for the time being, uh, for the foreseeable future, um, you know, we don't talk about what normative Islamic political theology looks like, could look like for them. But it's a bit because it seems a temporary, somewhat anomalous uh, phenomenon rather than a, a normative, ongoing permanent reality so uh you know until the caliphate is, re is restored or returned and so on we're waiting you know that there is an element of kind of the the tension between uh the provisional and the the permanent in the majority world and so this is kind of they're not quite equal are they the majority um muslim majority and minority world so what, what one is provisional and the other is more permanent or am i what do you think well i i'm arguing that operationally speaking if you if you're concerned about people the benefit and the welfare of these 400 million plus muslims some of whom are in very difficult positions mm. obviously you know there's an immediate duty of care yeah uh, uh you know i mean if you know operationally speaking the ummah is one body mm. uh and as the hadith famous hadith goes if any one part any limb or or part of that body feels pain the whole body feels that pain. And I'm assuming that that's not saying that the 400 million plus are sort of expendable. Uh, <laughs> but in fact, we should have a duty of care towards them yeah, and to each other. So so given that kind of, you know, and the blood, honor and dignity and property of every um, uh, Muslim is sacrosanct. This is another another hadith. Mm. Um, you know, we, we, we understand that there's no divisibility in that sense. Right. Um, so that's why I'm putting this forward as a provocation, because I know there's not much thought been done on this, but it seems to me that we need to start thinking about it, not in order to undermine a normative Islamic political theology per se, but in, but just to ask the question, are we going to have no discussion whatsoever about right. the one in five who don't live in a majority context? Right. Yeah. You know, it seemed, that seems madness to me, and, it, and beyond that, a kind of dereliction of duty if anything right. that's a good point that's a good point yeah um so the third um element is you know we need um if it's going to be an analytical concept ummah it needs to be in a critical dialogue with things like the nation states because the ummah is not territorial it also needs to be in a critical dialogue with the concept of minority itself because minority okay it may be a kind of fact that we live with every day mm. but minority is more than just a kind of numerical concept you know, minority comes out of the out of the emergence of the nation state system in Europe in the 16th century, known as the Westphalian order, yeah. which you know creates bounded territories, and minorities are defined within that loyalty to the to the prince and so on. Yeah. Uh, but the other aspect of minority, which is more salient to the Muslim experience, is is colonialism, and so you had de facto tiny numerical colonial elites ruling over a series uh, a majority population that was split up into minorities mm. so a kind of case of define divide and rule so they're defined redefined as yeah. tribes as ethnic groups 
and mm. as religions uh, mm. in order to divide them and to rule them. Yeah. Uh, and so they were operational minor colonial minorities. And that was, again, a really important uh, sense in which minority. So we are, I know, arguing the paper that minority is not a normative concept for us, um, but it is a reality we work from, if you see what I mean. Uh, but it's not yeah. normative. Um, no, I think, um, I think that's an important clarification you made there. That's very helpful, actually. Thank you. Yeah. And, and then I think that diaspora, it means, you know, originally meant uh, a, a group of people scattered from their homeland, ejected, exiled from their homeland. And but they, they're bound, although they're scattered, they're bound by a shared identity, history, culture and lost homeland. Today, it's an analytical concept used for not where the homeland is destroyed, the homeland remains, but you still have a dispersal of people from that homeland and they, they identify and in real time contact with their homeland and their families and so on. So you have transnational ties across nation state borders. Uh, and and, and the, 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 the sort of the fifth term really we need to consider when we talk about Ummah analytically is universalism. So, you know, Islam is universal dis dispensation. Um, mm. So Ummah is a universal concept. Um, mm. But Muslims don't have the idea that we will transform the globe into um, that everybody will become Muslim. Mm. I mean, this is not even um, not even uh, it, it, you know the sort of tacit reality of human diversity is by color or creed mm. um, is, is is recognized in the Quran. And yeah. so while while we have a universal message, we recognize there are other people and peoples in the world who may hang on to their own ideas of universalism. But what's really important as Muslims that we can say that you know in our version of universalism is actually more likely to accept the deep pluralism than say liberal universalism. Yes. Absolutely. Liberal universalism wants, you know, recognizes a kind of limited pluralism in which people are accepted as moral agents if they are li become liberals. Yes. But it has the place for the non-liberal, whereas in fact, Isla the Isla Islamic universalism is more deeply pluralistic than that, yes. as it accepts that there are going to be people who reject its message fundamentally, but yes. it doesn't. It doesn't uh, cast them out from the world. Uh, yeah. If you see what I mean. So, sorry, it's an important point you make there. In the West, it, it's completely not understood. It, it, we see the West as uh, emphasizing great diversity and tolerance and freedom and so on. But the only is, is actually in a quite a narrow band of, of permitted uh, ideologies and behaviors and worldviews. Whereas Islam actually is constitutionally in its DNA pluralist, uh, right back to the Pact of Medina or the Constitution of Medina in yeah. the. Uh, the prophet himself, which, uh, you know, um, uh, gave legal recognition to non-Muslims, be they Christians, Jews and uh, pagans and others to be part of the Ummah. And they were not required, obviously, to convert. They were given rights to practice their religion. The, 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 and and the, this is not recognized in the West. You, you don't have a, you know, yeah. uh, polygamy is not recognized. A whole bunch of religious practices are not accepted in the West. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, this is what I allude to, you know, the two elements of Ummah. Um, the two major elements in Ummah, one is the Quranic concept, and obviously, we, you know, uh, which, as I mentioned before, is unbordered. It's a universal concept. Yeah. It doesn't. It's not territorialized. It's an ethical concept centered on Quranic faith and justice. But as you say, the other major element that we draw from the Sirah is the Pact of Medina that comes after the, hmm. the Prophet peace be upon him comes to Medina, and 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 
but signs a pact with pagan Arabs and yeah. Jews and others. You know, that it would be a multi-confessional pact based on consultation mm. and mutual security. Yes. And, the, you know, meanwhile, you know, of course, the, the prophet has an arbitration role, um, but but there's mutual security and they accept that people are going to basically run their own affairs otherwise. So it's deeply pluralist in a way that, that it isn't possible in, yeah. in a liberal order um, yes. uh, um, where the law has to be um, equally, uh, what a singular law has to be equally applied across yeah, the territory. Everyone. Yeah, so, indiscriminately, without recognizing any differences. Like in in France, obviously, French law is uniform, universal, absolute, and non-negotiable. Yeah. It does, and without recognizing any uh, confessional diversity yeah. whatsoever, it refuses to do so. Actually, as a as a matter of principle. Yeah. I mean, not not every country is like France, and you know, no, obviously, no. in Britain, we have two legal systems, don't we? We have the Scottish, and we have the and the English and Welsh one, but so so there are kinks, and you know we're talking broadly here. But um, you know I agree that the fundamental point stands. Um, so I go on to discuss in the report um, power, and what, why do I discuss power? Because for a couple of reasons. One is that um, Muslims. In my 30, 40 years experience of being part of the Ummah, Muslims tend to, we tend to talk ourselves down. We tend to internalize a lot of, um, we, we, we don't, we can't be analytical and sober about the power that we do possess and how we can use it to do good in the world. We often talk about how actually other forces are acting upon us, but not, we never really talk about how we are acting and how we are actually shaping uh, to some degree shaping the world mm. either as minorities or majorities so there's a deliberate focus in this report a corrective focus on power but the other reason why i wanted to write about this about islamic power is that there is a big danger of in trying to reclaim power that we create a kind of secularized materialistic idea of power mm. so in other words you know there's a kind of if you like a hollowed out kind of Islamic uh, empowerment for Muslims, which actually starts to leave aside the salvific and the right. spiritual and so on, you know. Yeah. So yeah. in other words, it's just confined to the material world. And so that's why I wanted to kind of take this um, division by Joseph Nye, the famous uh, American political scientist, who talks divides power into two, um, soft power and hard power. Soft power is is persuasive power, hard power is coercive power. In that he he doesn't just include uh, military um, strength, but also economic power, because um, you can buy out, uh, basically buy out, um, buy buy people out. Well, so uh, I, without getting distracted at all, I don't want to, do, to interrupt you too much. But when you talk about the soft power um, for Muslim minorities embodying Islamic virtues. What are we talking about in practice? Could you give an example of what that might mean? Could you illustrate that? Okay, well, conceptually, let, let me put it like this. So so conceptually, um, we could have a sequestered identity. So, for instance, you could say that actually our Islam is manifested in, 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 in three institutions in the minority context. So, so it's manifested in family life primarily, right. but then the mosque. Right. And then the madrasa. So I would say like those three are, are where you see Islam. Okay. But that that if that were the case, 
entirely that nobody else would really know about Islam. Mm. There wouldn't be an embodiment of Islamic virtues in in life in the world, in 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 you know in 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 you know setting an example by mm. word and deed. So I mean, what I mean by this is anything outside of those core institutions where we embody Islamic virtues. This is how we show our, 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 what Islam is um, mm. in, in our everyday lives. We have to show what it is. Well, I, I, that, I can think of them would be like uh, uh, Muslims in Britain are very famous for giving incredibly to charity, uh, uh, to uh, charitable causes, uh, you know, huge amounts of money and not just Muslim charities, but generally for the welfare of people and the homeless and the poor. And that would be, I suppose, an embodying Islamic virtue because zakat and uh, giving, uh, giving to support the wayfarer and the poor and the marginalized is, is there in the Quran. It's a chronic injunction. So that that might be one way that would embody soft power in that way, perhaps. Yeah, it's 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 showing it's it's showing the reality of our lives, and um, I put here cultural, social, intellectual, and political. So in all of those domains, um, we have to we have to embody. And that you know the prophet the prophets uh, salatu wassalam, you know they 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 embodied the message by word and by example. And I think it's important to say by example. Yeah. It's not just a discursive. It's not just about having the best arguments, is it? It's about being mm -hmm. exemplary, being an example. I think it's so important. If we just, if we just think that, if we if we don't embody, but we just talk about Islamic virtues, I think mm -hmm. we're missing a huge, the huge point of the Prophet Wasallam, that 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 he was embodied Quran. He was a walking Quran. Mm -hmm. and so so that that is that is where we we might slip up. If we think that that actually Islam in the wider world is just a discursive argument, right. I, I think we'll be missing a huge trick there, uh, and missing I think that the, one of the largest, um, if not the largest, lessons of of the Sirah and the lives of the prophets. Mm -hmm. um, so hard power um, mm. here. I'm, uh, this is for Muslim minorities. So I'm not talking about Muslim majorities that have armies and whatnot. Uh, for minorities, you know, I, I would suggest that it's civil disobedience against discriminatory policies. So, for instance, you know, we withdraw our consent or participation from directly discriminatory policies. So we have to protest them. And then on, on the, that's a negative action. But then on top of that, because hard power includes economic power, it's things like the Muslim minority promotes trade with the Muslim majority world. We send uh, we send remittances already. You know, it's very interesting, Paul, that remittances are we talk about in the report. Remittances are one and a half times larger uh, than foreign direct investment in the Muslim world, mm. and on top of that, they are three times as big as um, um, uh, aid and development budgets. Right. So, so, so already, what is remittances? Sorry, could so you remittances are payments from one part of a family to to another part of fam right. family transnationally across right. national borders interesting it's one of those things the remittance is one of those things that goes completely under the radar mm. in terms of our community debate and discussion but in fact it's incredibly important mm. it's incredibly mm. important philanthropy we talked about earlier but one of the other pieces of research that the ayan institute is doing is that we uh, we were doing another big report on on, on Muslim charitable giving in the, in the UK, that 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 British Muslims contribute seven hundred million pounds per year in philanthropy. 
Mm. That, that's that's the headline figure that we found. Mm. Uh, and obviously, that might be a little bit low because that was, most of the research was done during COVID. Right. Um, so the, 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 the other thing is that um, is about the transfer of skills and expertise um, locally and globally. So again, you know, this is way in which most, we're talking about the power that Muslim minorities build. We do have, say, the, Muslim, the, the Western Nine or the Western Ten, if we include <laughs> Sweden, yeah. um, you know, is it does have skills, expertise. We do give a lot of philanthropy. We have the ability to promote trade, the ability to, if you like, organize against discriminatory policies against Muslim minorities and majorities. So we have all these all these things are in, are in our hand, and this is this is a form of power that we possess. Um, and so I think it's so important for us to understand this as these as forms of power. So going back to kind of uh, political theology for Muslim minorities, this is not that, but these are sort of four things, and I'm sure we could add other things, but these are kind of four things that that, that I view as important that. You know, of course, we're not talking about societies where uh, in China and and, and uh, India where Muslim minorities are being crushed. Mm. Here we're talking about minorities where they have some agency, some room for manoeuvre. Mm. Um, we're probably largely talking about the Africa 14 and the Western 9 at this point, and probably more the Western 9. But, but you know, the one thing is saving democracy from big finance capital and big business. Obviously, you know, we're, we're kind of the, the democracy is being hollowed out and we're being, we've sort of become oligarchies with moments of electoral democracy. But otherwise, it seems that it's business as usual. Mm -hmm. uh, the second thing is that to touch on our earlier conversation, we need to push very hard for deep pluralism, i.e. post-liberal pluralism in societies. Mm -hmm. Because if we want Muslim minorities to thrive, they can't really operate in systems where they're going to be reconstructed as liberals, uh, yeah. root and branch through the education system. So, so we have to work for deep pluralism. That may not create a society where um, that that looks like it, that looks Islamic, but it will be a society where Muslim minorities can live peacefully and thrive in their own terms. Mm. And may, maybe that's all we could expect for minorities. Um, that's that's another whole debate and big debate for another day. Um, the third is that, you know, I, I believe that we have to make anti-Islamophobia central to anti-racism. Um, the reason why I say this is because, you know, in the last 20 years, Islamophobia has been baked into the structure of the security state uh, mm. after 9-11. Uh, it's absolutely central to how those systems operate. And so the old kind of secular anti-racism where Muslims were expected to protest racist violence but leave their religion at the door. Mm. I think those days are over uh, and we need to actually insist, really, especially to a younger generation that of, of young Muslims who've been drawn towards a kind of, uh, I describe it as a sort of bismillah anti-racism. So a kind of, you know, okay, they have Muslim identities, they could even be recognised, but at no point really do they bring their Islamic values to bear upon tackling racism. Mm. And discrimination and Islamophobia, and the thing is, you know, we all know, we all we all learn from at the beginning that Islam, um, in the Quran mentions that you know the, the real distinction between human beings is taqwa, is piety, and it's not actually external matters like skin type or or what country you hail from or what language you speak or whatever it is. It's actually conduct, it's character, it's piety. This is a thing that ultimately 
um, distinguishes people. Um, and so uh, Islam is, is, is anti-racist in its DNA. Uh, but sadly, you know, we don't always live up to that in our own communities. And we certainly don't stand up for it. But it seems to me that if we take a kind of um, a, a pietist, uh, we take that, that message of character and conduct being the key thing. In whichever society we find ourselves, we don't want to have prejudicial structures in place that, 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 that um, if you like, don't put character and conduct at the centre of, of, of the idea of merit in a society. So wherever we are, uh, Muslims minorities need to bear witness to that fundamental truth and work towards it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fourth thing is, as I was saying before, we do need to protect Muslim minority rights in their own, uh, 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 you know, as a separate channel of concern, because mm-hmm. I don't believe that just raising the bar of all rights will necessarily mean that Muslim minority rights will be protected. So they need special attention uh, and care. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I notice in in your list, I mean, it's often spoken of under the radar. Um, I I don't want to divert in any way your presentation here, and I realise I'm opening up a can of worms here, but I just wanted to kind of just say it anyway, um, is the whole whole idea of hijra. A lot of people I know talk about uh, leaving, whether it be Britain or whatever, to to, uh, hopefully a better place. Wherever this place will be, of course, is the question. Will it be Indonesia? Is it Turkey? Is a favourite destination at the moment when I was there. A lot of reverts have have, have gone to Turkey, um, a much more welcoming place where they're not, uh, that the families are not, uh, their children are not indoctrinated with certain ideas they find elsewhere. Um, But you seem to be assuming an established, settled minority in the West where where Hydra is simply not discussed. It is simply not on the radar. But for many Muslims, do want to think about the options of leaving um, because the conditions are becoming, you talk about pre, pre-genocidal problems in India, but in Europe, uh, the conditions are in Sweden, for example, I spoke to Dr. Abdullah, uh, Dr. Um, Abdullah Swidi about this, are becoming more and more harsh towards Muslims, uh, that they're not stabilizing, they're actually getting worse. And his, his prognosis was quite pessimistic about the future of Muslims as minorities in Europe. Um, so are you assuming we'll just stay and not leave? And if we, or is this not an, is this not an issue, perhaps? Uh, I mean, I, where I stand on this issue of hijra is that, of course, um, in, 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 a, in the Islamic tradition, that the, the earth, or earth is vast and wide and you can, you can flee oppression. Obviously, you know, we live in a kind of contradictory world. We have many Muslims fleeing persecution and war to settle in Europe at the moment. Yeah. In the last decade, uh, hundreds of hundreds of thousands of Muslims have made the choice to come to Europe because they feel they're going to have basic security and they're not going to be uh, killed. Uh, and so, and meanwhile, we have Muslims who've grown up in Europe saying, actually, you know, I, I don't like the way my influences on my kids or or Mm. I don't like the way my wife is being looked at in the street or whatever I don't Mm. feel comfortable here I want to move so you know it it is a it is a complex mixed up picture but I I you know if you look at the 20th century uh, 19th and 20th centuries you know you've had lots of calls for hijra for for migration in the past um, but only a minority ever heeded that call and in the end you, you you ended up with let's take the partition of British India, you know, you still end up with this huge minority mm. um, whose political future one needs to worry about. There's no prospect that, that 
that all of India's Muslims were going to relocate to Pakistan or Bangladesh. I mean, that was never going to happen. So there's like a, there is a kind of, if we're being a little bit pragmatic here, there's always going to be, a, the, the call for Hijra is only ever going to be for a minority. Mm. I mean, the vast majority are going to stay put. Yeah. Uh, and so as, as a responsible community, we need to not, to be less preoccupied by the romance of the idea of Hijra and actually focus a lot more on how do we actually just help our communities to survive, number one, and number two, to thrive. Right. We have to at least hold out the hope that we can do more than just survive. Okay. Um, and and, and my point is that, you know, we need to articulate where we'd like to head in order that we can start to work towards it. I mean, the worst thing is, is to be in a kind of permanent crisis mode mm. where it's hopeless and we just have to make hijra because only a minority are ever going to do that. Because we're never going to have the resources and the wealth and the opportunities to do that. You have to have money to emigrate, to buy property, to literally move anyway. So a lot of poor people sit there's not going to be a realistic option anyway. Look, look, wherever we are, Paul, wherever you go in the world, there'll be other problems there. Um, it's yeah. not like there may be different kinds of problems, but you know, you there's no there's no there's no gender, there's no paradise in the world. Um, you know, I think wherever Allah places us in the world. You know, we have to, I, I don't think everybody should just run away. I, I think, you know, we, we have to ex accept that we have to build and we have to, mm -hmm. you know, we have to, we have to build something. We have to do something. Yep. Uh, we have to have a focus on building institutions. And that's, a, you know, the next thing I should really talk about here, which is that, you know, I, I did a sort of 130 year sort of survey of Muslims in the West. And what did they do to, to to build institutions? What did they do to do more than survive? What did they do to thrive? Um, and so, you know, I, I kind of mentioned 10 things here. Um, you know, the top three are all kind of saying the same thing, but, but don't do your politics and nationalist silos. Connect with, with the wider ummah. Uh, it's very, very important because, and this is what all of our pioneers did, um, and as communities become better established and become as culturally assimilated to some degree, we need to make a conscious effort to remain connected to Ummah. So, you know, in our generation, that there's been a big move towards saying that um, uh, we have to sort out our home polit homeland politics first. You know, we can't think about the Ummah. Um, it's too much and we'll be stigmatized, you know, we'll, we'll make ourselves targets if we do that. Um, but but I would turn that around and suggest that that is the political challenge of our generation. Our political challenge is to do both at once, mm. um, to to act locally and to think globally or automatically, to, to, to think locally, to think about local welfare, mm. but also to act, you know, to act globally. So either act or think locally or, or act or think globally at the same time it's, it's that balancing act that that is our that is our challenge if the, if the ummah is really one body you know we have to remember it's not that the ummah is over there somewhere uh mm. suffering mm. from an earthquake or, or or whatever it is and we're sending over money that the ummah is some the ummah is also on our doorstep mm -hmm. and we also have to take our champion point two champion your cause of the ummah it's not like the, the, the cause of British Muslims is just for British Muslims and it's like a nationalist thing. No, we have certain cross-cutting issues like, for instance, prevent, 
Okay, so the prevent policy is a counter terrorism policy developed in Britain, which has been exported globally, which is why wow. it matters, you know, globally. Um, but of all the Western countries, Britain is the, has, is the most securitized state out of all of those 38. We have more provisions, more policies and laws than any, any of those other 38 countries. So, so you know, we the British Muslim community has done the most research, the most analysis, has provided kind of thought leadership on this. And that's why the institutions we built in the last 20 years to look at, at the securitization of Muslim minorities is very important for others around the world. So we have made that cause a nomadic cause. All I'm saying is it's possible to do it. Uh, we shouldn't think that our, our politics is just parochial. So in other words, a strong Muslim minority is one that thinks about the Ummah in a connected way. That doesn't mean that we, we prioritize the majority over the minority or the minority over the majority. We have to do both at once. And so to do that, we need uh, independent institutions. Uh, we need to build alliances and coalitions within our society. We need to empower our community materially and spiritually. As I've been saying, I don't think empowerment should be a material concept only. Uh, we have to keep calling to Islam calling people to Islam because Islam is not an it's not a, a an ethnicized religion okay we have to it, it's a universal dispensation of the prophet and whichever society we find ourselves in we need to make that universal call I mean in an age of postmodernism to make a call to universalism is itself probably the most subversive thing yes. you can do today yeah uh, but we have to insist on that uh, and not forget it there's a big huge pressure on us to drop universal claims in the name of Islam. Yes. We, we have to actually resist that. Yeah, the, 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 the zeitgeist is so powerful that, all, as you say, all truth is relative and we can't make these meta-narrative claims and we can't say there is the truth. The truth is, you know, there, there is God, one, yeah. one God. This is sort of all, uh, very socially taboo. Uh, you're supposed to allow yeah. plurality metaphysics and philosophies as a normative reality. But of course, that's uh, simply not possible Islamically because the Quran is extremely clear on this. And of course, you know, we, we, of course, as we said earlier, that that doesn't deep pluralism is still can still be yeah. part of any universal claim to truth. So it's dividing the epistemological questions from the from the project of exactly. living together. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And uh, if people so, don't get this, I was speaking to a guy yesterday who couldn't understand it. If Islam makes a claim to absolute truth, therefore, it must be intolerant and suppress any opposition. To that. No, no, no. That's a kind of a Christian worldview where, uh, you know, where if you had a particular religious, a particular confessional position as a christian nation but church of england and you ban the catholics you ban everyone else in islam as you say that the the pluralism is part of the dna of the religion itself even though the belief system is absolutist it very much permits and allows others to uh, exist and flourish within their own terms yeah the, 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 god doesn't want forced love and devotion this yeah. is the thing is it's not a Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not a tyrant who wants to compel people to believe this is this is this is the this is the the I guess the gift of human freedom, right? That, that we have to choose mm. uh, uh, to 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 love him and to be devoted to him. He's mm. not interested in forced love. And the Quran, <laughs> Quran, Quran repeatedly says this. Of course, this is not just of your, course. This is there the Quranic. No, I'm, I'm putting it in a street language, but yeah, you know, I mean, I just think that it's makes complete sense to me. What what? Why would you want to? Why would you link uh, epistemological unity with political unity if you mm -hmm. see what i mean the kind of westphalian logic if you like the, relig the religion of the prince is the religion of the state 
exactly. is the religion of, and you could have some tolerated minorities but you know they could be very much under pressure uh, as they were um, so anyway so um, the ninth point is that Muslim women should be at the heart of community leadership um, it seems to me that um, in my 30 years experience at least that whenever I work with community organizations where women and men shared leadership we provided we, we, we developed solutions that were much more holistic um, that went all the way which were where all the dots were connected if I can put it that way so so between mm -hmm. public life and family life in a holistic way we saw how all issues were connected uh, because quite often you know when problems and challenges actually you need approaches that are coming at all different levels of community life and and what i've found is that if we if you split that leadership you get split solutions that don't they're only holding on you know one part of the elephant if you know what i mean like holding on to the tail somebody else is holding on to the trunk actually you need um joint leadership in order to, to actually really come up with holistic uh, uh solutions uh the tenth one is prioritizing creative and media skills um, the reason why I say that is because many of our Muslim creatives actually have to go outside of the Muslim community for support. And then that means that they're really performing their cre creativity for a kind of secular audience. Uh, actually, what you really want is them being able to kind of expand the definition of what it means to be human. Um, the non-liberal the non human, if I like, or yeah. the, the theist, the theocrat, also is a human being. So, I mean, the point of the creative expression is it can't all be about, you know, discursive arguments, uh, theological argument. That's how we present that. No, it has to come through cultural expression, through, you know, through poetry and, and film and, and song and so on. Um, and on top of that, we need to really invest in media skills because, as you know, like every 18 months, there's a new platform, there's a new app, and, and it, it, it's driving a new form of cultural expression. Um, so, you know what I mean? We, we, retraining seems to be very, very constant at the moment. Um, and so, you know, in the, in the noughties, it was blogs, right? Now, now it's podcasts. And maybe it will change again, uh, you know, depending on the technology and where it goes. So, so obviously, we're always playing catch-up. Um, so... I'll end here, the presentation here. You know, we we need to, um, you know, the Aaron Institute is really interested in, I like, the next three steps mm. rather than the next 20, you know, thinking 20 steps ahead. Because, you know, the way that we empower our communities is to make them think about the next few steps they can take with something that, that they can grasp, something that's in their hands already. So we need to sort of foster these independent spaces for border, borderless automatic networks, you know, to build solidarity, knowledge, expertise, and capacity that model post-national global solidarity for humanity at large. The reason why I say that is because if we go back to the original map that I showed at the beginning of this, you know, we have the core of the Muslim world, and then we have these minorities in, in India, uh, in Russia, China, Africa and the Americas and Europe, if those minorities are effectively plugged into the, the core, then we are modeling glo global solidarity for humanity at large. Mm. Because every single major civilization 
will be part it is and will be part of a connected ummah mm-hmm. once we revive our, our revive our civilization um you know we can model that solidarity for humanity you know muslims can model how to live with profound difference yeah for the rest of humanity yeah, and so- why do i think it's important i don't think it's just the kumbaya thing if you know what i mean i hate that uh, expression i hate that I hope it dies and withers on the vine no but you know what? i'm saying it deliberately <laughs> i'm saying it as a prophet no, I, I know i know it's yeah a- but 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 yeah, it's not all about peace and love had your number you know i mean um uh, you know in other words you know we, cultural difference is an asset it's not a problem it, it yeah. we should, you know islam doesn't see it as a problem it sees it as an asset and if yeah. we can make that to work for us and get rid of the kind of nationalist bug that has infected us then, then we can actually show everyone else how we can deal with planetary ch- challenges like the climate crisis you know it seems to me that it nationalist competition is stopping us from cooperating on really big issues i mean you know like you see glimpses of it don't you at the beginning of the covid pandemic at the beginning when for instance big pharma companies and um governments and universities and so on dropped all of their sort of borders of knowledge and they collaborated in real time in the race to, to formulate a vaccine and at the moment that they did that, that massive mobilization of resources, all of a sudden, which was, was, was global, all of a sudden you see what's possible when there's intense cooperation yeah. rather than intense competition. Huh. And, and that's what I'm saying to you, that, that with these big challenges that we have, like cli- the climate crisis, we need to get to somehow get to something like that. Because mm-hmm. at the moment, all, all I see is a lot of nationalist competition and rivalry rather than you know rather than a kind of deep collaboration where, where we need it where it would be rational you know to want to seek that so uh, i'll end it there uh, cool. if you want to i'll bring you back uh, just the two of us cool uh okay. that was uh, extremely interesting thank you very much you for that um i just I, just just one <clears throat> one point about the, the elephant in the room in the way you very briefly touched on it uh early on uh, and that was the place uh, or role uh, that the uh, in the aspirations and the imagination and the thinking and the politicizing of uh, of the Ummah, minority and majority in the world of the return of the caliphate and what what role and place does that have in our thinking, if not in the reality? I take it it's not here, but now, but uh, in our thinking. I just want to just read a, a sentence from uh, this rather uh, interesting book by uh, Dr. Riza Pankhurst. Um, called the the inevitable caliphate: a history of the struggle for global Islamic union, 1924 to the present, which I've read. Um, and it's just uh, on page 16, he writes just one thing. In his view, what what the he refers to what he considers to be the classic orthodox Islamic position, which holds, he says, that there is an indisputable consensus that there should be a single ruler for the Muslim community, and that this ruler is charged with the ruling by the law of God, <clears throat> excuse me, the basis for this kind of unequivocal consensus, he says, is the abundance of clear evidence that can be found in the primary sources of Islam, the Quran and the prophetic narrations, which make these two points explicitly clear. Now, I, I know in, in your in your report, you're dealing with realities as they are. You're looking at the, the realities of minority living in, in the West and in Africa and so on. 
but but what but what role or place does the return of the the return of the caliphate play in the political uh, aspirations of the ummah uh, everyone in minority and majority context, do you think? Yeah, the report does go into the the. It does describe the post-caliphate world. So, so, so what the report does say that in the post-caliphate world, which you know we we take it, you know, the Ottoman calif the Ottoman claim to the caliphate was widely recognised amongst Muslims, but it was never universally recognized. We have to be clear about that, but it was widely recognized. It was the last great Muslim power. You know, some people, the Moroccans will claim that they have a caliphate uh, in their their kingdom, which is unbroken as well. In the, we could call it the far Islamic West. Um, But, um, so in the post-Ottoman world or the post-caliphate world, Certainly, it left a big hole because you know six hundred years uh, of duration and at least four, you know three four hundred years in the middle the central Middle East, mm. and North Africa, and so on. You know, mm. it, it was it was a time of relative peace um, in 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 that region. Um, certainly, far more peaceful than it has been, you know, during your, your European colonialism and, and after. Yeah. So, so, so there is a kind of a lot a, a feeling of loss for sure, uh, in in the in the Muslim, in the heartlands of the Muslim world, um, for for a loss of a great Muslim power, a champion, you know, a champion that would stand up for the Muslims of India, you know, as we were talking earlier, you know, if you had a great champion in the world, um, then we would all probably breathe a little, sleep a little bit easier. You know, we, yeah. we probably all breathe a little bit easier, um, but none of us see that see any immediate prospect of that. So, um, in in a context where, in fact, actually, um, I would break it down to something much more simple. At the moment, is that we need to build a feeling of solid Muslim solidarity in the first place. So. In other words, Muslim solidarity is not like an infinite resource. It's not something, it's not like water on tap. Mm. (laughs) That feeling of solidarity with Muslims everywhere, which I I take to be a kind of foundational level at which you would aspire to be more unified. You would aspire to help one another, to to aid one another, to care for one another, and so on. You know, that's the ground, the basis upon which you would have, uh, you know, a more unified Muslim power in the world, because without that sentiment, I don't, I don't see how you could have that. And, and what I'm trying to say is, I think in a world where we're all divided up into nation states, either as minorities or majorities, you know, we need to actually start building that solidarity. That's why I say at the at the end of the report that you know we need to build connectivity, and mm. not just not just in an I, I, in, in in a kind of abstract sense of what do you teach kids at madrasa. I mean, things much more like, you know, only something like, you know, only less than 5% of the trade in the Muslim world is with other Muslim countries. Most yeah. of the trade is external. Gosh, so, for instance, just building intra-Muslim trade or building it cultural exchanges between schools and universities, you know, exchange of academic staff. In other words, okay, the internet provides us a great opportunity you now to talk across borders to compare notes and to, to come to a kind to create global conversations about our collective future. So the internet is a, a great ally 
in 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 that sense it's our great yeah. uh, that technological shift yeah. is our great ally it is but but yeah it's not the full stop of it it's just one tool the mm. others have to be in real life exchanges yeah. cultural exchanges to build a feeling of a, a practical solidarity and the reason why I say that has to, you know, I, I have very li relatively little faith uh, at the moment in existing nation states to do mm. that conscientiously. If anything, they're trying to use Islamic power to buttress their legitimacy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, or even to, to actually push down Muslim minorities where they feel they're speaking out of turn. Mm. Um, you know, the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, for instance, is a good example of this. In the last decade or so they've played quite a, a big role in trying to for instance interfere in american muslim politics mm. um it's not just about what people are saying about the emirates or whatever mm. you know so so th actually there's real there are real issues right. so so the thing is is that you know i i think that muslim minorities have to talk back to muslim majorities but often it would be more productive if we're bypassing the states these these states that are are sort of hyper pushing kind of hyper religious nationalism um mm. you know we, we need to actually kind of restart the conversation so i for me in my thinking honestly in the thinking of the iron institute we need to be thinking about these very practical immediate steps some mm. people might interpret that as a kind of um a dereliction of duty that we're not focused upon kind of creedal discussions of around political theology of muslims uh, but I see something different. I see a generation losing touch with this feeling of Muslim solidarity. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I think we need to find practical, conscientious ways to reinforce that in real time for our young people. It could be that both approaches yeah. are complementary, actually, rather than mutually exclusive, that you're just emphasising different facets of, uh, of the whole. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I, I don't see why creedal discussions would would have any direct bearing on this. Um, but I, I see a bigger gap in these kind of concrete ways of building the, the feeling of solidarity, uh, which I think is groundwork that must be done. It has to be done. Yeah. Because otherwise we could just become national minorities and mm. no longer regard ourselves yeah. other than pay lip service to the idea of, of, of Muslims, wider Muslim solidarity. Yeah. So I, I see that, that as the primary force acting on these minorities. And so we need to conscientiously take concrete steps to counteract it, not just in terms of how we teach political theology. If you mm. see what I mean, we need to just... I think yeah, well, what you're saying in a British context is perfectly fine, and, and I, I certainly appreciate what you're saying. Uh, and you're not addressing other countries. You know, I'm thinking, I keep on thinking of France. What, if you were to say what you're saying now in France as a French Muslim, that would be subversive. It would be a threat. It would be perceived, I think, as a threat to the state because you're not giving obeisance to the French state. You're talking transnationally. You're talking about an other political, unofficial entity, the Ummah, um, and the allegiances to that. You, uh, I'm not in any way criticizing what you're saying. I don't mean it that way. I mean, I'm just saying that we can speak like this in our, perhaps our context in, in Britain and maybe in the States without it triggering too many people. I think in some countries, it would, it would, there, there would be a backlash uh, by the state, uh, and France is very hot on this kind of thing, uh, as we know from recent expulsions of imams and so on. So, it, it uh, I, I know you're not just I saying mean, the thing you have it, to stand it, up. It's, it's quite challenging. You, 
thing to say in some context. You, you know, you have to stand up and, and uh, you know, you have to do a Malcolm X. I mean, Malcolm X took yep. the cause of Black America yep. um, and, and made it an automatic and international human rights issue. Yeah. You know, after he left the Nation of Islam, he toured Africa, he toured the Middle East, mm. he met heads of state, he made it an international issue. I mean, the Americans, the CIA and the, the American political assumption absolutely hated him for it and demonized him for it, but he laid the groundwork, a really yeah. important groundwork, um, uh, which others built on later on. Um, and he said that American, the civil rights of the African-Americans should never be a parochial issue. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, it, the, the, the plight of the Muslims in France, they have to build out, which they're starting to do, they need to build outwards networks of solidarity and support. They shouldn't do this on their own. Yeah, uh, so and we should be ready to help them. We have to be ready to help them. Challenging. It just is it going to be? And you're not denying this, of course. But it's going to be more challenging for some minorities than others to do this. No, uh, we have to walk into the challenge. That's what I'm saying to you. We, we, you look. France is not China or or, or, or India. Not yet. Uh, at the moment. Not yet. Not, Not yet. yet, but it doesn't mean that you don't, you know, it doesn't mean that let's let's hedge our bets and all move to Istanbul. <laughs> it means that there's going to be a fight. We're going to have a fight on our hands, a political mm -hmm. fight. And I'm saying don't do that on your own. Mm -hmm. Build alliances within France. Mm -hmm. Reconstitute the left in France so it's not anti-Islamophobic, but it's actually going to fight, protect the civil rights of Muslim organizations who are currently being shut, like their big charities and their yeah. advocacy groups are being exactly. shut down. So yeah. and that's partly because the French left became divided. Mm -hmm. um, if the, the French left was stronger, then they, those shutdowns wouldn't have happened. Sarkozy wouldn't have been pulled to the right mm -hmm. um, by, by my Marine Le Pen. So, mm -hmm. so you have that on one side. Um, and uh, on the other side, you, um, you know, you've got, uh, the fact that that um, now that um, uh, um, you know th th there's very draconian measures happening in, in France, it is becoming an, in an international issue. So we have to lean into that, and we have to to work hard for that. So I'm not saying any of this is necessarily easy. No, no. I'm just saying the answer is not to talk about Hydra and talk, just talk about the the theological niceties of the Caliphate. We have to actually just get our hands dirty and get stuck in mm. and actually try to protect what rights we have, improve them if we can, but we shouldn't just make our Islam a kind of academic exercise. Mm. You know, we've got to actually act and work in the world together mm. um, and do what we can. Um, you know, I always take one of my, one of the Hadith narrations that always, um, it always, uh, how can I put it? Always inspires me. Uh, is the one where the the prophet counselled that even if the the, the the trumpet is sounded for the yes. day of judgment, yes. and you're planting a tree, mm, mm. finish the job of planting yes. the tree. Yes. Yes. And I always take hope from that. That okay, no matter how bad things seem, mm. you still have. If you're trying to do good in the world, that you don't stop. It'll, you can finish the, the job. You know, you you carry acting yeah. and acting in the world. You, we believe. Yeah. You know, how many times the Quran always joins together belief and good good acts in the world mm. believe and do good believe and do good again and again these two things are joined and we're not just believers we're doers as well mm -hmm. we do we act in the world and so we have to have those two together mm. um and uh, uh and we have to act justly and, and and with moderation as the quran commands us to 
um, uh, and you know we carry on <laughs> keep calm and keep calm and carry on, carry on yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's a bit of a, a, a creed for no that well, that's uh, fantastic I, I i do commend your report um for what it's worth uh, me recommending it but i i link to it in the description below uma at the margins the past present and future of muslim minorities an absolutely fascinating extremely well researched uh, and uh, erudite uh, report um, as I say, I do highly recommend we people uh, familiarize themselves with the contents and think, as you say, you're starting a conversation. You're not you're not uh, being a kind of a, a magisterium that's uh, teaching and issuing uh, dictats from on high. <laughs> um, the, the, the minute I said it was a magisterium, my, my life would be over. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of an Islamic magisterium in, from West Yorkshire is it, nonetheless <laughs> has, a, has an appeal, perhaps, um, but that's. But not on this occasion, at least. Uh, that's not what you're doing. Uh, you, you, as you say, you're very, you're very, very kind of mature and opening up lines of thought and discussion, uh, and uh, which is extremely interesting. So thank you very much indeed for your presentation. Uh, uh, extremely excellent work, and um, we look forward to future uh, contributions from you as well. Um, and I guess that's it. Um, don't want to detain you any further. But thank you, thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much for having me, Paul. Take care. Until next time.